Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Integral Live for our second episode of The Ken Wilber Show. My name is Corey DeVos. I'm the managing editor of Integral Life, and I'm really happy to be joined once again by my very good friend, Ken Wilber. Ken, how are you? Good, buddy. Good. good. Awesome. I'm, I'm excited to do this again. Um, so, you know, a few weeks ago, you and I had a really awesome conversation uh, about sort of the general regression and dysfunction that we're seeing taking place right. in both political parties. And so I thought that, you know, this time, rather than kind of further dissecting and talking about the qualities or the symptoms of that regression, what I really wanted to get to was, you know, sort of your thoughts about why this regression might be taking place in the first place. So, you know, I thought I would describe a couple thoughts that I have, and then, you know, I wanted to hear what you think, see if you have any, any other reflections on that. So for me, you know, I think so much of this basically comes down to what I've been calling the shape of the machine, um, by which I mean the platforms that we're using for the majority of our political discourse these days, which namely means social media. And it's literally the shape of the machine, which is in turn reshaping our culture, our behaviors, and our own minds. As we often see, the lower right quadrant exerts a massive unseen influence on all the other quadrants. And these lower right quadrant social media platforms, all of which are built on a sort of postmodern principle of the relativization of information, all of these are in effect bending our behaviors towards red narcissism and amber groupthink. And these are, you know, literally the only neurological incentives that these platforms offer. It's, it's like a slot machine at Vegas, right? You get a, a little dopamine squirt every time someone pays attention to you and another little squirt every time someone agrees with you. And, you know, I think the effect that this has is it's, it's like we're all sort of being mind hacked into tribalization. And we spend, you know, the majority of our time these days kind of surrounded by our own confirmation biases in our own little custom mediated information bubbles. And, you know, considering that these platforms are where the majority of people are spending, you know, their time these days, it's probably not too surprising to see the effect that all of this is having on our patterns of political self-organization. And, you know, of course, this isn't even to mention the bot networks and the 4chan trolls and the AstroTurf propaganda, the foreign social media campaigns, all of which are also constantly trying to sway public opinion back and forth and swing the Overton window. And I had a, you know, before I get your response, Ken, I also had a, a little excerpt from Doug Rushkoff that I wanted to read aloud because I think he really, really does a great job of putting his finger on the pulse of the problem here. Uh, and this is from a short essay that he wrote called The New Nationalism. Again, this is Douglas Rushkoff. Uh, and he says, most of us thought digital technology would connect the world in new ways. But the internet age has actually herald heralded the opposite result. We're not advancing towards some new global society, but instead retreating back to nationalism. Instead of moving towards a colors of Benetton racial intermingling, we find many yearning for a fictional past when people like to think our races were distinct and all was well. Welcome to the digital media environment. It's not a continuation of the television environment that preceded it, but an entirely distinct landscape for human society, which engenders very different attitudes and behaviors. This is because the primary bias of the digital media environment is for distinction. 
Analog media, such as radio and television, were continuous, like the sound of a vinyl record. Digital media, by contrast, are made of many discrete samples. Likewise, digital networks break up our messages into tiny packets and reassemble them on the other end. Computer programs all boil down to a series of ones and zeros, on or off. This logic trickles up to the platforms and the apps that we use. Everything is a choice, from font size to the place on a snap to grid. It's either 12 point or 13 point positioned here or there. Did you send the email or not? There are no in-betweens. So it's no wonder that a society functioning on these platforms would tend towards similarly discrete formulations, like or unlike, black or white, rich or poor, agree or disagree. In a self-reinforcing feedback loop, each choice we make is noticed and acted upon by the algorithms personalizing our news feeds, further isolating each one of us in our own ideological filter bubble. Not one of the thousands of people who show up in my own Twitter feed support Brexit or Trump. But for those supporters, I'm sure the reverse is also true. This is very different from the television environment, which engendered a big blue marble melting pot, hands across the world, international space station, cooperative internationalism, all well-funded by globalist foundations from Rockefeller and Ford to Soros and Clinton, who are both still espousing the transnational values of a television world. To be sure, globalism has had some genuinely devastating effects on many of those who are now pushing back. Wealth disparity is at an all-time high as the mitigating effects of local and national economic activity is dwarfed by that of global trade and transnational banks. But the way people are responding to this pressure, so far anyway, is strictly digital in spirit. And he summarizes by saying, in some sense, those of us who want to preserve the one world vision of the TV media environment are the ones who must stop looking back. If we're going to promote connection, tolerance, and progressive internationalism, we'll have to do it in a way that's more consonant with the digital media environment in which we're actually living. Awesome quote. Awesome yeah. quote. And again, I think he really sort of nails it in terms of, um, you know, the main pressures that we're facing that is really driving so much of our behavior, so much of our political identity, so much of our, our, our own consciousness, our own minds, our own views, pushing it down. And as I say, Facebook is actually giving us neurological rewards for this sort of lower behavior, this yeah. lower altitude behavior. So I wanted to get your thoughts about that, Ken. Yeah, I mean, uh, we talk a lot in integral theory or integral meta theory <clears throat> about the extraordinary impact that the lower right quadrant has uh, on all the other quadrants, on human beings in general. Mm -hmm. So what we have seen with the whole emergence of a cyber space um, is that it is a fundamental lower right quadrant shaping factor but it has an extraordinary impact on our interiors. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and one of the things that lets it happen, and by the way, I, I pretty much agree with everything you and the person you just quoted said, um, but we wanna look a little bit at, at, at the impact this has on, on interiors. And one of the reasons that cyberspace um, allows this kind of polarization 
is the sheer speed and information crunching capacity. It allows you to find others that agree with you, that think the same way you do very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. In the real world, that's actually kind of hard. Uh, prior to the cyber world, you could spend a whole life putting together 10 or 12 people that you felt really close to. And of course, most of them also disagreed with you in, in important ways. Mm-hmm. Now, on, on cyberspace, uh, a couple of clicks and you can find thousands of people that agree with you sort of right down the line. And as you say, you get one little dopamine squirt every time somebody pays attention to you, and then you get another little dopamine squirt every time somebody agrees with you, and pretty soon that's all you want. Mm -hmm. And this spills over into the university setting, where what we want is safe spaces, and we have trigger warnings and microaggressions and all of these things. some psychologists that I respect have traced this in part, looking more on the cultural side, to what started happening in um, the 80s and 90s in terms of how parents raise kids. Mm-hmm. Um, all of a sudden, because there was a, a, a rash of child uh, kidnappings, um, and there was, of course, the whole... Um, sexual scandal stuff where uh, school teachers were supposed to be sexually abusing kids. And much of that was found to be not true. But parents indeed started this kind of helicopter parenting. And to the point now where it's actually illegal in most cities and most states for you to let a six-year-old child walk by itself two blocks to the park. Parents can be arrested for that. It's crazy. And so we've got this um, bubble package wrapped kids (laughs) showing up um, at at, um, places like Yale and Harvard and Dartmouth. And all they want is a continuation of home there's one famous um, YouTube video of a, uh, a young girl screaming at a professor. I mean, just absolute yelling at the top of her lungs. You're supposed to be creating a home for us. This isn't a home. You're disagreeing with everything we're saying. I mean, you know, oh, shock of shock. Or universities can disagree with you. Yeah. That's exactly what they're supposed to do. Being a home is exactly what they're not supposed to do. And the problem is coming uh, um, out of those kinds of echo chambers is that people really aren't prepared to deal with the real world and the actual diversity that's found in that world. And that becomes a real problem. Um, And the more you go online, the more you get reinforced to believe just what your beliefs tell you to, the more you are removed from any sort of actual discussion, dialogue, argument in the best sense, um, the really worse things become. 